Well, we're returning to our series on 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, and we're reading today chapter 21 and part of chapter 22, and I titled our message today, Desperate Times, Desperate Times. We all have some story told by our grandparents of things that they did creatively to survive, <laughs> Um, of stories of uh, very difficult times and what they did to um, overcome those things. As we talk to our grandparents, we marvel at their ingenuity. Um, but you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. So the saying goes. I remember being in school and hearing stories of the people in, that lived in the 1915. Uh, we had a big drought there in Brazil and people found all sorts of ways of surviving. They started eating cacti, just strangest things. Um, and then I do recall too, here in the US, that during the Great Depression, uh, pictures of children um, being sold because their parents couldn't afford to feed them and they thought maybe if we give them first someone that has a little bit more than we have, they have more chance of surviving. So desperate times really um, brings us to do things that we normally wouldn't in um, ordinary circumstances. And yet if one is in a desperate condition for long, one begins to get desperate about getting through desperation. It becomes weary, especially if, like David, what we're going to see today, one is on his own. David now has the unassurance assurance that Saul, if it is up to him, he will have David's head. There can be, now there's no more Jonathans, there are no more Michaels, there's no more Samuels to come for his aid. Where to go? What to do? What benefits can there possibly be in such a nip, nip and tuck, skin of teeth times? This stretch of narrative that we're going to read seems to have a quiet answer to that question. The text seems to say that even in the most desperate times, Yahweh, the Lord, does not let his servants, least of all David, as a king elect by God. So let's open our Bibles in 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21. How about we stand up? You know, I think we, we normally don't have that, that tradition. If you are not able to stand up, you're totally fine to read it um, sitting down. But I think it's a way we can show a reverence for the Word of God. So this says the Word of God. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I'm sending, I'm sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young man to a certain place. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread and whatever else can be found. The priest answered David and said, there's no ordinary bread on hand, 
but there is consecrated bread if only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when we set out on the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, and for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which was removed before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place and when it was taken away. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, Now, is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is wrapped in a cloth and behind the ephod. ephod. If you would like to take it for yourself, take it, for there is no one except it here. And David said, there is no, none like it. Give it to me. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of one um, as they danced and sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands. And he scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down to his beard. Then Achish said to his servant, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act as a madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word that is um, powerful and to strengthen us and to um, open our understanding even as we look at the circumstances around us. Lord, I know that there might be people here today struggling and going through desperate times. And as we look to your instructions, Lord, may we learn how can we answer in a way that is glorifying to you. Oh, and oh, Lord, does help us to have comfort and peace that comes from Christ. I pray that you would bless each one here today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, so today we'll see four ways in which God is present in the midst of despair. And I use the few, you know, as a typical TMS grad, I'm using the, the literation here, P words, provision, praise, protective providence, and providential guidance. These are the ways in which the Lord is with us. The first one that we'll learn today is the Lord's timely provision amidst despair. We read here in chapter 21 that David came to Nob, 
Nob was a city located in the eastern, so let me see if I have the map already there, um, right here. So Nob was north of Jerusalem, over there. Uh, maybe this, is this a side that people can see more? So Jerusalem right here, and then Nob was probably up north near Gibeah of Saul. Um, so it's in the eastern slopes of Mount Scopus, opposite of the Mount of Olives, and just two miles northeast of Jerusalem. Though not a Levitical city, that small settlement was populated by the descendants of Aaron the priest, who operated as a Yahwistic worship center there. Members of Saul's entourage did not come to the sanctuary from time to time, and then some suggest that it was the most sacred shrine of Saul's kingdom, a kind of official state of sanctuary. You remember that Shiloh is to be the center of worship. That's where the tabernacle was, but then the ark was taken away. And so that all got dissolved, and now we have different places of worship there in Israel. And Nob was one of them. Ahimelech, who oversaw the sanctuary, trembled when David unexpectedly arrived alone. Why did he tremble before David? Perhaps Ahimelech was aware of the recent events in, at Naoth. If you remember, in chapter 19, um, Saul sends his soldiers and then they, to, 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 the prof, to the prophets where David was hiding with, and he tries to, to exterminate them, but they start prophesying. So the Lord protects. But maybe Ahimelech was thinking, Oh, he's going to come for us now. Uh, perhaps um, Ahimelech was aware of these events, and he feared the repetition of these events at Nob. Knowing that David was commander of the royal bodyguard, he thought it unusual for David to be alone, that is, without the king. Accordingly, he brought David with two questions that probed into the circumstance of his visit. Why was David alone and no one was with him? People have different ways of looking at David's answer. Some take that language. Um, some take his answer to be, this is just a superficial, self-serving deception. While others see it as a shrewd but honest language. So David noted in chapter verse 2 there that the king commissioned me with a certain matter. What he failed to clarify in his opening words to Ahimelech, however, was the name of the king of which what he was referring to. If he was King Yahweh, since David is elsewhere recorded, referring to God as king in the Psalms, um, and then David was telling the truth, that <laughs> the king did send him in the matter. Though some readers may look at it differently, I think David's story is actually rather rickety. I, he, is, he is, and he tells Ahimelech on a highly sensitive government assignment. His credentials are top secret. That is the reason for traveling alone. Though to be sure, he does have a squad of men waiting to meet him later. As we read at the end there, verse 2, directed the young man to a certain place. Perhaps David convinces here, but he makes us skeptics when he, he tells Ahimelech that King's mission was so urgent that he left even without the sword, his swords of weapons. 
It, it sounds like a, a plumber asking to borrow a customer's pipe wrenches. It doesn't make any sense. Or an insurance salesman without its basic forms, without their working tools. How can a soldier does not have a sword? A fighter, a protective, a protector of the king, does not have a sword. Well, David needs food and he needs weapons. But his cover story is less than satisfying. Secrecy and solitude were essential aspects of the special mission given to him. Due to the matter, according to him, of urgency and haste, David was now several miles from Gibeah and had made no provision for food. Boldly, he asked Ahimelech for five loaves of bread and whatever it can be found. Receiving food from others actually was kind of a tradition um, and part of the culture um, at that time. And even in the Middle East, you don't see people hungry and you let them starve. They, um, there's just a, a community aspect of feeding people in need. Um, so David's request was not exceptional. There was one problem associated with honoring David's request. Ahimelech did not have any ordinary bread on hand. That is, bread that might be offered to non-Levites without any special consideration. However, he did possess consecrated bread, the bread of the presence that had been removed, in verse 6 we read, have been removed before the Lord and in order to put hot bread in its place. So this replacement, actually, I, I'm, I have a picture here of uh, the tabernacle. Uh, this is a replica that is in Timina Valley. It's south of, um, it's south of um, Israel. And then you have that, that table, a golden table, with the 12 loaves of bread, the consecrated bread. Now, it is interesting here. Because God doesn't need food. <laughs> Right in the temple, why, why does they have always to have that bread there before the presence of the Lord? It was a reminder that he was a provider of his people. That was to feed the Levites, not God. The pagan gods would have sacrifices daily. They would put animals in, um, and, 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 and slaughter them to feed the gods. And that's not the case with Yahweh, with the one true God. He doesn't need anything. He need, doesn't need anything for us. Actually, we need his provision. So that is the table of the bread there. Um, this replacement of the bread may have occurred in connection with the new moon festival celebrated a day or two earlier. Remember in chapter 20 where David said, I'm going to go for a sacrifice. Under normal circumstances, the Torah required that such food be consumed only by Aaron and his sons. We're going to read it in a little bit here in Leviticus chapter 24. So if you can already turn there. Yet specific Torah laws might be set aside if a higher level consideration is warranted, especially the preservation of life. As vested... Um, Arionic priest, Ahimelech, probably was wearing something similar to what they have here. Um, Ahimelech possessed authority to interpret and apply Torah guidelines to specific cases and could do so with some latitude. He had independence to decide what to do with it. Since food was necessary for life and David and his men had no food, it consisted with 
It was consistent with Torah principles to provide David and his men the means to sustain their lives. Ahimelech ruled that David and his men could eat the bread reserved for the Levites if they did so in a Levite-like way. As long as you behave like Levites, that is, with due consideration to the ritual purity laws, obviously we're not under the law anymore, so we don't follow those um, purity or um, ritual uh, laws. Levites could eat the bread of the presence only in the holy place, so it had to be in a tabernacle, and thus were required to be ritually clean. Doesn't mean that they were uh, necessarily sinning, but if they touched a corpse, for, for instance, they would be considered unclean. Since David and his men were supposedly, supposedly on a military mission, then it could be expected, obviously, that they would have killed people and they would have touched uh, dead bodies. So they had to be kept clean, especially those regarding contact with corpses. However, it was reasonable to ask men on military missions to keep ritual cleanliness law that related to sexual contact that have been agreed to, and David was given the consecrated bread. Well, they're fine. Uh, they haven't been with anyone. Why did David take this tactic with Ahimelech? The question. We can only guess. Perhaps he was trying to save Ahimelech um, from being implicated in aiding an enemy of the crown. If David, and just think about this, if David did not tell Ahimelech he was fleeing from Saul then, Ahimelech could rightly claim that he knew nothing about David's renegade status at that time that he helped him. And in chapter 22, we're not going to read it today, um, that's exactly what Ahimelech says. You know, I have no idea what was going on here. David's story might have been his attempt to protect Ahimelech. In any case, the text neither condemns nor justifies David for his conduct. Isn't that interesting? Because normally, uh, at times, we read scripture, and you see someone's lying or, or doing something wrong, and we will have a, a, the Lord commenting on it. He would say, and that was evil before the eyes of the Lord. But uh, it is, um, God provides his moral evaluations on certain matters, but at other times, he simply remains silent. But that doesn't mean that he's indifferent. We can't understand Dave's difficulty here. There we say he was in panic. He seems, he seems at his wit's end and certainly at life's edge. That does not justify him jeopardizing, jeopardizing Ahimelech. However, the text is not condemning David's conduct, but only reporting it. It may describe what he did but he does not care to discuss it. We do better to ask a different question then. What does God seem to be doing here? We know that in the confusion and danger and fear, David received daily bread. Is it too much to say that the text depicts some simple, namely that Yahweh sustained him, God provided for him? It was no small item, but a clear need. The bread he received was nothing less than the bread of the presence, which ordinarily only the priests could eat. So you have, if you're there in Leviticus chapter 24, 
we're going to see the description of this special bread here. You have there at the table, um, and we're looking at verses 5 through 9. Um, numbers, not Leviticus. We're looking to verse 5. Then you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephod shall be in each cake, and you shall set them into two rolls, six in one roll, on the pure gold table before the Lord. You shall put pure frankincense on each roll that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. And it is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. It shall be for Aaron and for his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him. From the Lord's offering, by offerings by fire, his portion forever. So it was a form of sacrifice to God, and yet it wasn't God that ate that bread. It was given to the priests. So the bread of the presence, as we read here, uh, it literally, if you're reading in Hebrew, it means the a bread of the face, because it's before the face of the Lord. That is what, what it means there. It was set out before the Lord, that is, in his presence, in the holy place, in the sanctuary, each Sabbath. The, some translations use the show bread, and it consisted of 12 loaves of bread set in two rolls on a table before the Lord. The 12 loaves symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel. Each loaf contained about 12 cups of flour, and so the loaves were larger than regular <laughs> loaves of bread. So the old bread was to be eaten only by the priests in the holy place. They were, among other things, a quiet witness that Yahweh sustains his people and supply for their needs. In 1 Samuel 21, Ahimelech's holy bread becomes now David's daily bread. And his controversies, uh, I'm, you probably will remember this, Jesus had a, a controversy with the Pharisees about the Sabbath. Remember? Matthew 12, you can look it up later. Jesus he speaks he speak approvingly of Ahimelech's dealings with David described in this chapter. He said, did you forget what happened when they ate uh, of, the, of the holy bread? Where there is conflict between obligations of moral law and the rituals of ceremonial law, the one must give way to the other. Ahimelech was right to deal mercifully with David and meet his need for food, despite the restrictions of the, Levi the Leviticus regarding the holy bread. Ritual institutions, even the most sacred ones, must yield place to the works of necessity and mercy involved in meeting human needs. So it was all about providing for a greater need. Well, if we keep moving here in verse 7, let's go back to our text in 1 Samuel 21. We have a little bit of a gleam of fear 
Verse 7 says, Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doag the Edomite. You might want to cheat and read it later about Doag. He's not a good guy. Um, as we progress in our narrative, we green with fear. The literary camera turns to show this briefest clip of a narrowed, narrowed eyes and curled lip of Doeg the Edomite, one of Saul's minions. Only a momentary glance, but it sends a shudder at the reader's spines, all the more if you have cheated and, and read ahead of time, you'll see that he's going to kill all the priests of God. Earlier, Saul had fought against the Edomites in chapter 14, um, and so thinking about Israel, let me see if there, the map there. So the country of Israel here, we have Moab on this side of the Jordan, and then we have Edom it's on the south here. It's a mountainous region, kind of uh, red rocks. Um, so that's the country of Edom. And we, they just had a, a war with them recently. So perhaps Doag was a prisoner of war who had provingly unusually useful to Saul. Or alternatively, he might have been just a mercenary. The purpose of Doag's presence at Nob is not clearly understood by modern interpreters, but it may be related to some, some form of punishment or penance that he was left there. Now, verse 8 and 9, besides food, David needed a weapon. Consequently, consequently, he inquired about obtaining a spear or a sword. And it is reasonable to assume that David asked about these items because he had deposited Goliath's weapons there earlier as a gift of dedication. There are some texts that indicate that you could consecrate an object that you won in a war to the Lord. So such gifts could be returned to the one who had given them, though a redemption payment would normally be having been required. Ahimelech, who carefully preserved David's dedicated item wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod, granted David's permission to reclaim it, which he did without hesitation. He just took it. Now, if you are a very careful reader, you may object and complain that David, in all his finagling and deception, does not deserve this provision. So what else is new? Who would have daily bread if it rested on our deserts? Would it all be skeletons? Who is deserving of any of God's gifts? I appreciate what Genesis 32.10 says. Jacob is, is praying to the Lord in great danger. And he says, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. Aren't we all unworthy of his loving kindness? Aren't we all unworthy of his provision? When everything is scraped down to the bone, I receive my daily bread, not because I am godly, but because Yahweh is gracious. There may well be a word in David's provision for, our, for us contemporary Christians. One may be under a heavy load or boxed in or pressed down under various vocational or emotional or spiritual or circumstantial pressures, but am I still eating every day? 
at least once. Doesn't God's small provision in big problems tell me something? Doesn't it assure me that God has not yet cast me off? It should be an encouragement to us. And I think of um, many ways that the Lord has provided for us as a church, um, for us as individuals. Um, we can tell again and again of his faithfulness, not because of what we deserve, but what, because of what he has done. Now, our second, uh, the second way that the Lord um, works here, and I titled this one as a deliverance praise to the Lord in the midst of despair. So in an effort to find sanctuary from Saul, and we're looking at verse 10 through 15, and yet avoiding endangering the lives of his family and friends, David went to Achish, the king of Gath. So we're looking there. He was a little bit north of Jerusalem. So he went all the way down to Gath. These are all Philistine cities, Gezer, Gath, Lachish, and there was other ones here in that plain of Israel. So mountainous region, um, somewhat hilly region, and then just this is just all flat. This is the city of Gath. So I might have a picture there. Um, they have just, you know, rolling hills, not a whole lot of um, um, description there. Here's an area view of the Tel Esafi. Uh, it's a biblical Gath, one of the most, one of the five cities that made up the Philistine Pentapolis. I, I just remember not liking, we went on a walk on that city. So you see that hilly part in the, the map there. Um, so we went on this hike, and I just remember not liking that city very much. It stunk. I don't know what it was, but it was just reeking bad. <laughs> I don't know what the problem was, like, still smelling of the dirty Philistines. <laughs> I remember not liking much because of that. So was David, what was David doing here in the first place? That is enemy territory. I mean, duh. Is it as if David is becoming Goliath? I mean, he's armed with his sword, and he's going to his hometown. That's, that's Goliath's hometown. David is obviously walking by sight and not by faith, trusting his own wits. When viewed from a strictly, strictly human perspective, his actions are perhaps understandable. After all, desperate times call for desperate measures. This is how the saying goes, right? But, um, but walking by sight eventually fails, and David, who was earlier lied to, who earlier lied to Ahimelech, is forced to live out a lie by pretending to be a madman. This denial of his real identity is the culmination of a series of actions that deny God's mighty work in his past and his divinely appointed destiny. However, David's arrival in the city aroused suspicions among the royal servants. Um, Achish was the king of Gath. Um, uh, king Achish's attendant were poorly informed and yet ironically insightful concerning David. They mistakenly, verse 11 there, they called him the king of the land. They called David the king of the land. At the same time, they were aware of his status as a Hebrew folk hero who was celebrated with a song and dance. Knowing what was being said about 
him, David realized that his life was much at risk in the royal court of Gath as it was in the royal court of Gibeah with Saul. So consequently, he found it necessary to act with the same wisdom here that enabled him to survive in Saul's court. David turns to acting, and he proves quite convincing. For, pres- for the present situation, he used a different tactic. He disguised his sanity, as we read in verse 13. He disguised his uh, sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands. This was accomplished by acts of vandalism against public property um, and demeaning acts against his own person. He abused the public property in Gath because he scribbled or made marks on the doors of the gate, perhaps writing nonsensical graffiti, whatever he was doing, or symbols associated with cultic curses. I mean, just imagine for the, the maintenance people to clean up all that mess, <laughs> what it was like. So more maintenance for gas parks and recreation department. He also treated himself disgracefully by letting saliva run down his beard. Now, for us, it doesn't seem to be a big deal. It's just a mad person. But the beard was an obvious and important symbol of manhood in that culture. And a desecration of one's beard, especially with a spit, would be... Um, just like I lost my place here. Um, especially with spit, would be an obvious indication of the derangement within the context of their culture. A little exposure to that constant scratching and soaking convinces Akish that he's gotten other crazy around in his town. So David's act, um, but he was thinking he does already have his own quota of such folks. David's act was certainly convincing to Achish, who pronounced the foreigner insane, we read in verse 14. This way, he convinced the Philistine that he was no longer a threat to them, launching into a tirade against his courtiers. Achish questioned why they had even allowed David to get in the royal city. Achish's suggestion that there was an ample supply of madman in Gath and needed to be taken. We, we don't need to take this literally, that there were a lot of crazy people there. Yet, you know there are people in Gath that are unusual. They have an unusual height. Um, people with 24 thumbs and fingers. I mean, I wouldn't doubt that there were um, also um, people with... Um, some lunatic tendencies. His actions also sharpened the contrast between himself and Saul. I want you to pay attention to this. David took upon himself the trappings of insanity to hide his actual sanity. Saul surrounded himself with the trappings of sanity to cloak his insanity. He was the madman, and yes, he was, yet he was pretending to be the one that was sane. Now, what that David's behavior here teaches us, I appreciate the way that Dr. Chisholm, that um, professor, applies this principle. He says, when believers allow their faith to waver, they ignore 
what God has done in their lives and deny their relation to God. So I'm going to read that again. It says, when believers allow their faith to waver, like we've seen here with David, they ignore what God has done in their lives and they deny their relation to God. And God is not worthy of our distrust. He never proved himself to, to fail us. Why should we distrust him? I believe there is a parallel of this principle in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. If you're familiar with that book series, or you remember that after Lucy has been to Narnia and comes back to tell the story, all of her siblings doubt her and make fun of her. The professor stops this exchange by asking Lucy's siblings if they have always found her to be truthful, to which they reply, yes, she's always been truthful. And then the professor says, a charge of lying against someone who, whom you have always found truthful is a very serious thing, a very serious thing indeed. So in the same way, we have found our God to be truthful in the past. Our doubt is a very serious thing indeed. We need to learn that God sometimes put his people in a place where they must face up to their calling and trust him. But danger can cause faith, faith to waver. God does not promise, promise us um, to keep his chosen servants from danger. On the contrary, in his providence, he sometimes put his people in a place where they must face up to their calling and trust him. But danger can cause fear, and it can cause faith to waver. God's chosen servants do not always maintain their confidence and perspective in the faith of their challenges. When faith wavers, one can lose focus on God and act in ways that contradicts one's own creed and experience. We deny with our actions our faith. I just remember being in desperate times in, in seminary and calling my mom. And in first thing, she was just simple. Where's your faith? Where's your faith? <laughs> As um, when faith wavers, one can lose focus on God and act in ways that contradict one's faith and experience. Here's a lesson for us on David's deliverance. Even when his chosen servants falter, the Lord confronts them with their calling. As David runs for his life and he acts in desperation, but the Lord does not turn his back on his chosen servant. I want you to notice something here on verse 11. Just look at verse 11. When David arrives in Gath, Sometimes we read this and we don't even, like, what, what is going on here? When David arrives in Gath, the Lord uses the Philistines, although inadvertently, to confront David with his destiny and remind him of his past success. What did he call them? Called him the king of the land. They called David the king of the land. That's what God called him for. As if they were aware of his private anointing by Samuel, I don't think they were. They also recalled the song of the Israelite woman who celebrated his victory over Goliath of Gath with, and with his words, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. 
David's experience is a reminder that the Lord pursues his chosen servants when they try to run away. Whether due to fear or other reasons, he does that. Remembers Jonah? The Lord did not let him do his own way. Now, we must not merely call these episodes in David, David's folly and just sign how, lo- how lucky he was of just getting out of that situation. I suggest our response to be governed by David's own response. And we got to leave a little bit here for Samuel. We're going to go to Psalms 34. So he wrote two Psalms on this occasion. After he escaped the, um, the Philistines in the city of Gath, Um, he goes on to the, the caves of Adolan. Um, well, he says the cave of Adolan. There are actually a lot of caves in that area. Uh, one in particular here in the corner. Um, it's quite wide and um, similar to this one here that we are. I mean, some of these caves you crawl. Some of them are very, lo- very big, like this one. You see my size here, a friend of mine here and us. Like how, how deep it is. Um, so this is where David went. And then he wrote this psalm. I remember reading Psalm 34 there and just thinking, but David just came out of this crazy situation, faking to be crazy, and then he's delivered. So he writes this psalm. And that is a comfort for us. And I, I hope that this week he will come again and again back to this psalm. Psalm 34, a psalm of David when he, he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I see what he says here. I sought the Lord. And I, I do think maybe at that moment where he just, Lord, just give me wisdom. Just help me. Um, come to my help. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. And their faces will never be ashamed. These poor men cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. He says that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. You know, I don't think that Achish uh, or Abimelech or however uh, he might be called um, would have bought into that faking. I mean, he's a wise man. He's a leader. And in just in a few, just a, f- a few years or months, all these events happened. He killed Goliath. Um, I don't think he would have just done that. It was truly the Lord that prevented him, um, David, from being killed. And this is my favorite part here, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you, you saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. It talks about God's provision. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. 
Come, you children, listen to me, and I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days, that he may see good? You seek the Lord, because he's the one that does good. Um, what an encouragement. I don't think David is just thinking, I am lucky that I got out of this. He's attributing to God his deliverance. And it resulted in praise. His deliverance from all his fears and all his troubles is the pledge that Yahweh will follow suit from other believers and the basis of his continuing praise. Along with desperation, there is nevertheless praise. I do not mean that we should act foolishly in order to praise, that praise may come, but only that we should never forget God's mercies given us even in our foolishness. David leaned on his own understanding and he acted foolishly. And yet the Lord delivered him. Now that we have seen the deliverance praise to the Lord amidst despair, we will learn about the Lord's protective providence in the midst of despair. So let's come back to 1 Samuel. And we're going out to chapter 22. The short few verses there. So after David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became a captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Then he left them, left them with the king of Moab and then stayed with, with him all of the time that David was in the stronghold. And the prophet Gad said to, um, actually we're going to save the chapter, verse 5 for last. So leaving Gath, David went 10 miles, um, 10 miles east to the cave of Adolan in the Judahite territory. Let me see if we come back here. So he was here north of Jerusalem, flees to Gath, pretends to be, to be crazy, and then he goes down north, uh, down south, um, up to the, to the mountainous region of, um, of Judah. So David escaped to the cave of Adolan, a town in the low hills of um, what they call Shephelah, that area, west of Judah, 12 miles east of Gath. His brothers and family were probably fearful of Saul's vindictiveness, so they came to Adolan to meet with David there. This, is, this region is in the mountainous region of Judah. It's full of caves, and some of them you can crawl through, as I said, or there's space, um, lots of space to fit an entire army. Well, that is convenient. God's nat natural hideouts. But David and his parents were not the only ones that came. We read in verse 2. An assorted kaleidoscope of social riffraff, malcontents, folks in debt, people in distress. They began filtering to David. At this time, 400 of them looked to David as their captain. 
Ruling all Israel might not be much difficult than controlling and molding such a ragtag body. I mean, if you can deal with the rough ones, it would be easier to rule uh, over the others. The 400 were individuals who lived on the ragged edge of society. They came to David's outpost in the Israelite, Israelite frontier lands. And included among this group were everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented, they gathered to him. Those whom the various reasons had failed to integrate in the fabric of society, they gathered and they flocked to David. And then we read here later that he moved then, after being in the caves of Adolan, he was concerned with his parents, probably aged at that point, Jesse and his wife, um, David's parents, uh, were needing refuge. And it says that they went to the country of Moab, and in there, the king of Moab does provide, he has a request to the king of Moab, and he provides shelter for his parents. Now, the king, the king granted David's request, perhaps, for two reasons. First, because he was honoring an ancient practice of providing sanctuary for adversaries of enemies. Saul was his enemy, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And second, because David had a Moabite great-grandmother. All right, this is, this is the cool part of this story. Turn back to Ruth. This is the, the book right before 1 Samuel. And we read these things. We're just like, don't realize how God is acting even before time to provide for David here protection. Um. We have the genealogy of David stated there. Um, so Boaz took Ruth, and he, she became his wife, and they gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left me without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he be also to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. And then um, moving to verse 18. Oh, actually, verse 16 says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him in the, her lap and became her nurse, his nurse. The neighbor woman gave him the name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. What an amazing um, tracing back. So there may have been a reason why the king of Moab proved so helpful. One can hardly keep from remembering that Ruth was a Moabitess, uh, was David's great-grandmother. Naturally, we cannot be sure how heavily this, really, uh, this fact weighed in the king of Moab, but we may assume that have, must have counted for something. Having a tad of Moabite blood in his veins certainly would not have hurt David's case. Our text doesn't dogmatize this connection, but it does suggest a reflective Bible reader that David's Moabite ancestress might have aided his request for asylum for his parents. Doesn't this put the book of Ruth in such a, a, a different perspective? Does it not shed light on Naomi's trial, on her husband's and her son's death, on her facing almost certain poverty and destitution, 
on her one daughter-in-law insisted faithfulness on all the quiet twists of circumstance by which Ruth came to meet Boaz and so on. All that formed the perfect backdrop so that David could nicely and persuasively appeal to the king of Moab now. Old Naomi could never have had a clue that her suffering would bear much fruit for one of her descendants one century later. This is a great thought for us. For us, Can we reflect of past situations where the Lord perfectly orchestrated in his providence some deliverance or solution for a situation that seemed to have no way out? I actually have an example of this. I remember... Um, I lost my scholarship at some point in my master's in counseling, and um, I was just very distressed. You know, I couldn't, as an international student, couldn't work more hours to pay for more. Um, and I, I just remember going and, and praying at in the campus there, just saying, Lord, you know, I, I'm thankful. What, whatever you have given me so far, I'm just thankful that you brought me thus far. But if it pleases you to help me to... <laughs> continue my studies and pay my tuition, do so. And I had a phone call almost immediately. Um, I don't know for some, I don't know how, if maybe I did share the information, but a friend of mine heard that I, I was in, in debt with the school. And he, and he called me and said, Ronaldo, I, you know, the other day, my home church in Michigan um, sent someone, sent us money for me and my wife. And We've just been thinking about this. Well, this was unexpected money. The Lord has provided for us in abundance. We really don't need this money. And I thought, maybe I can. I, I could donate that to you. I, you know, my wife and I, we talked through this, and we prayed about it, and we just want to give that money to you. And it was the exact amount. The exact amount that was given to them <laughs> was the amount that it was necessary to pay the tuition. How many times... Even before time, we don't even realize what's happening behind the scenes, and the Lord is providing for us. Then lastly here on verse 5, the Lord's providential guidance amidst despair. We read here, the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the rest and went into the forest of Hereth. So where's this prophet Gad come from? David went and came out to the forest of Hereth. The commanded is stayed in the categorical prohibition using a clause structure parallel to that of the Ten Commandments. This is how strong this command is. Gad, this prophet, comes to David and commands him to leave the country of Moab because that's where he went to take his parents. And the reason for this strong wording is simple. The Torah pro prohibited the establishment of friend treaties with Moabite people. As a true prophet of the Lord, Gad's duty was to help others understand and heed the Torah. So he, if David established such a treaty with the king of Moab, he would violate the Torah and so risk bringing judgment on himself and all who were with him. So yes, the Lord did use that to protect his parents, but he shouldn't remain there. Um, even though it meant leaving the stronghold built by human hands, David would find himself in a far safer stronghold, God himself. Where did God come from, Gad come from? Was he one of Samuel's prophetic group? 
The prophet Gad, first mentioned here, appears to have uh, been a member of David's band of followers. He later is going to inform David of punishment for a violation of God's will. And also, if you read First Chronic, Chronicles, he was one of the historians that wrote um, David's biography, which suggests that the prophet had a long tenure of service to David. In any case, what difference does a passing reference to an unknown prophet make? The answer to that question is easy, an enormous difference. This verse shows that Yahweh gives David direction and a special guidance through a prophet. Why is that so significant? Because Saul did not have that. Later on, we're going to see that he's seeking the Lord and he's not going to find him. And he would not seek him. He sought a, 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 necroman, a necromancist, a, a lady that consulted dead people. But he didn't seek the Lord. Saul was a man on, on his own, shut up to his own wits. A man without direction from God. He had no light in his misery. But the gleams of God's guidance shine on David through the counsel of the prophet Gad. While desperation is no fun, but desperation and silence are unbearable. Being in a slimy pit, it is not quite so bad if one can hear his shepherd's voice and know he is near. David heard the voice directly through the prophet Gad. God's troubled people still hear his voice. And the prophetic word made more sure. Turn to 2 Peter. We're going to close with that passage. 2 Peter. We're looking at chapter 1. We don't have a prophet Gad to come and give us instructions and guidance, but the Lord does provide instruction for us. When we are afflicted, when we are in doubt, we can say with Peter, so we have the prophetic word, the word of God, the Bible, made more sure to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Because know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever been made by an act of human will, but man moved by the Holy Spirit is spoke from God. And now we have a copy of this book that we can seek guidance. Rejoice through the endurance and encouragement of scriptures that give us hope, as in uh, Romans 15.4 we read the other week. I want to close with this story that, for me, was such a, a key point. In Vietnam in 1971, an interpreter, um, his name is Hien Pham, he was raised a devout Buddhist. One day he was given a Bible by an American soldier, and he was interested and he had questions. So he found a Christian church that could explain about Jesus Christ and his great love for him. Hien believed and accepted that Jesus died for him. He became an energetic and devoted Christian. He worked closely as a translator with the American military forces purely as a civilian. 
He knew English so well that he was able to be immersed to help them in Bible translation. By virtue of that same strength, he also worked with some missionaries. But within four years, Vietnam fell to the communists, and Hien was arrested. He was imprisoned on the accusations of helping the Americans. He was in and out of prison for several years. And during one long jail term, the sole purpose of his jailers was to indoctrinate him against the West, and especially against the democratic ideals and the Christian faith. He was cut off of reading anything in English and restricted to the communist propaganda in French and Vietnamese. And the daily deluge of Marx and Eagles began to take its toll. Maybe, he thought, he started thinking, I have been lied to. Maybe God does not exist. Maybe the West has deceived me. So he determined that when he awakened the next day, he would not pray anymore or think of his faith. Well, the next morning comes, and he was assigned to the dreaded shore of cleaning prison latrines. And he claimed out of a tin can overflowing with toilet paper, his eye caught up something that seemed to be English printed on a piece of paper. He hurriedly grabbed it, and because he, wasn't, he hasn't read English in a long time, he was excited and washed it. And after his roommates have retired at night, he retrieved the paper and read the words, Romans chapter 8. Trembling, he began to read, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, and skipping to the end, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He wept. He knew his Bible, and he knew there was not a more relevant passage for one in the verge of surrender. He knew his Bible, he cried out to God asking for forgiveness, for this was to have been the first day that he would not pray, remember? Evidently, God had other plans for him. The next day, he actually asked the camp commander if he could clean the latrine again. And he continued with his shore on a regular basis because he had discovered that some official in the camp was using a Bible as a toilet paper. Each day, he unpicked a portion of scripture, cleaned it up, and added to his nightly devotions. In this way, he retrieved a significant portion of the Bible. What his tormentors were using for refuse, the scriptures, could not be more treasured by him. Beloved, we have this word of God to us, not in the latrine, and that is the anchor for our soul. May we yearn to value it. God's instruction for us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your great love for us, for the way that you provide for our needs, for the way that you help us even when we act in foolishness, 
in our leaning on our own understanding. Thank you. Thank you for providing for us and for even giving your word to give us encouragement and hope in the time of our greatest need. In your name, amen. All right, you're dismissed.